Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 93 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And of course, this week marks two years since GDPR came into force across Europe and the UK. And we'd like to say a big thank you to all of our listeners who've been with us throughout most of those two years. So coming up in this week's episode, we have some concerns that have been raised after the publication of the Top ID 19 Track and Trace Privacy Notice here in the UK, which showed that Top ID 19 Track and Trace data was going to be held for somewhat longer than most people had anticipated. We also have news that two UK companies have launched a Top ID 19 Digital House Passport, and we then have a look at getting back to normal after Top ID 19 and what that means, how we, how we can adapt to the new normal and what GDPR things we need to be aware of as we move into that new normal as lockdown conditions gradually ease across the UK and Europe. Then moving away from Top ID 19, we have news of a data breach affecting the Northern Ireland Historic Sexual Abuse Inquiry. We then have news that the EU Parliament has confirmed the data breach, which was rumoured last week. And we have an update on the large data breach at EasyJet. We also have two other companies confirming data breaches this week, Minted and Mathway. We also have an update on the Capital One data breach with news that a judge has ruled that Capital One must release forensic reports into their data breach. We then have news that Vermont has updated its data breach notification law. And we end this week with news that Mercedes-Benz has learnt a lesson from a data leak. So as always, a mixed range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the programme useful and informative. And if you have any feedback for us, we always look forward to receiving your feedback. Just send an email to podcast.insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. We do read every single piece of feedback that we receive and wherever possible we look to incorporate your feedback into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of date feedback which we receive, it's not possible to answer feedback individually, but please be assured every piece of feedback is read and taken into account. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. While testing continues on the NHS COVID-19 tracking app on the Isle of Wight, the government is moving ahead with a manual track and trace system which rely on NHS staff making contact with confirmed COVID-19 sufferers and asking them for information of who they've been in touch with in the last five days and then using that information to try and contact those people. However, what has come out this week is the NHS and Public Health England have issued their privacy notice for the data that they're going to collect as part of the track and trace process. And I think for myself, and I'm sure for many listeners, the biggest surprise is that the data which is being collected as part of this track and trace system is not going to be disposed of at the end of the current pandemic, which is how it was portrayed when this system was launched, but is actually going to be kept for 20 years by NHS England. 
The information collected will include the full name, the date of birth, as well as phone numbers and home and email addresses for people with coronavirus or symptoms of COVID-19, alongside data about those symptoms. Those who have been identified as contacts of people with coronavirus will have all but their date of birth collected, and their data will be stored for five years. When we questioned Public Health England about this, the response we got was that COVID-19 is a new disease and it's not yet clear what its longer-term impacts on public health will be, either on people who have been diagnosed with the disease or their close contact. It is important that Public Health England is able to retain information about these cases and their contacts to help control any future outbreaks or to provide any new treatments. This information will be held securely by Public Health England and is only used for purposes that help protect the public's health from COVID-19. They went on to say the data is held on Public Health England's secure cloud environment which is kept up to date to protect it from viruses and hacking. It can only be seen by those who have a specific and legitimate role in the response and who are working on the NHS test and trace programme. All of these staff have been trained to protect people's confidentiality. Individuals will be able to ask for their information to be deleted but Public Health England warned that this is not an absolute right. This month, and you may remember we reported on this in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, Harriet Harman, the chair of the Parliamentary Committee, said that big powers demand big safeguards. The government should not resist their assurances being put into law. Parliament completed emergency legislation for new powers. It can now do it for new protections. This was because Harriet Harman's Commons Committee thought that GDPR was insufficient to protect the data gathered under the COVID-19 track and trace system and it's important as well to remember that that committee called on the government to guarantee the right to delete the data from the project. Outside of the House of Commons, independent legal experts have raised concerns over the loosely defined part of the notice referring to who may process the data, which will apparently be, and I quote, seen by those who have a specific and legitimate role in the response, end quote. Ravi Nayak, human rights lawyer and co-founder of the data rights agency AWO, said that vagary over the specific and legitimate role is a real concern because the NHS has made clear they're working with third-party companies like Google and Palantir to store their data. So do those companies have a specific and legitimate role? When we questioned them about this, the NHS said that under new legislation introduced at the beginning of the pandemic, NHS bodies are at liberty to share sensitive patient data with any third parties deemed necessary to respond to the crisis, which may apply to the test and trace data set too. They went on to say that the purpose of the data is to control the spread of the virus, meaning the NHS probably wouldn't be able to use it as a proxy for something like immunity passports. But that's not to say that some third party couldn't take that data and create immunity passports. The legal experts have also balked at the fact that the data will be retained for 20 years, despite the fact that GDPR contains a stipulation that data shouldn't be retained any longer than necessary. There are ongoing privacy concerns over the NHS Digital Contact Tracing app due to its centralised design that means data is stored in a database run by the government. You may remember that we covered this a few weeks ago on the GDPR Weekly Show when we pointed out the differences between the NHS Digital app and the other app being developed based on Google and Apple technology. Within the NHS Digital app, there are concerns that identifiable data could be repurposed for other uses, such as law enforcement activities, as well as the data that could be sold on to third parties, such as US healthcare companies. These concerns about the app have been met with the assurances that the data will be pseudonymized. The Data Protection Impact Assessment for the app even made repeated references to the data being anonymous and claiming that the app preserves anonymity. 
a blog post about the app security written by Ian Levy, director of NCSC and arm of the GCHQ, repeatedly uses the word anonymous, albeit defined in a security sense rather than by a legal definition, to describe data that is collected and processed by the app. It appears that the app will be integrated into the much wider manual test and trace program which is now getting underway, with the former TalkTalk CEO, Dido Harding, who is leading the program, recently calling the app the cherry on top of the wider regime. Public Health England, for its part, maintains that the two data sets will be kept separate, but if the app is intimately linked to, and a structurally integral piece of, the tra- test and trace program, it's unclear how data obtained through the app and information obtained through track and trace won't functionally be combined. If it's all being put to the same purpose, how can the claims of pseudonymity shielding one subset of the data be reconciled with the personally identifiable data retained by the wider test and trace program? Experts have also quibbled over the test and trace privacy notices with reference to personally identifiable information, PII, a term which does not appear in either GDPR or the UK's Data Protection Act 2018, but is a term more commonly used under US law. This is likely to fan the flames of worry about the degradation of data laws following Brexit and further privatisation of the NHS. This, of course, is going to be an ongoing issue. It's not going to go away. And so, doubtless, we will be bringing you updates to this in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Manchester-based cybersecurity firm VST Enterprises has signed a deal with digital health company Circle Pass Enterprises to create a digital health passport designed to make it easier for individuals to safely return to work after the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. The two companies have partnered together to create the world's most secure digital health passport known as Pass, and according to VST Enterprises are committed to working with governments and major stakeholders to deploy the technology. It's been announced that CPE will ship the digital health passports in 15 countries around the world, including Italy, Portugal, France, Panama, India, the USA, Canada, Sweden, Spain, South Africa, Mexico, United Arab Emirates and the Netherlands, with the goal of supplying 50 million digital health passports. It's understood that the first passports will begin shipping from next week. VST Enterprises, V-Code and V-Platform technologies will be integrated into the Covid Pass to ensure it is secure. So how will this coronavirus digital health passport work? Well, the Tobi Pass will work using a colour system of green, amber and red to indicate whether the individual has tested positive or negative for Tobi D19 and other relevant health information. To begin with, the user will download the app and enter key information such as their name, address, age and verify their identity using either their fingerprint or a facial scan. They then take a Tob ID19 test administered by an authorised healthcare professional and the results are scanned into the Tobby Pass. They can then use the digital health passport to authenticate their health status to enable a safe return to work, life and safe travel, particularly for critical care and emergency service key workers. However, a significant shortage of coronavirus test kits could make testing of the new passport a challenge. Nevertheless, VST believes the technology could be key to ending the lockdown. Louis James Davis, CEO of VST Enterprises, said, We firmly believe that the digital health passport, alongside government-approved testing kits, is the key to removing the lockdown restrictions in a gradual and controlled way. The current technology being trialled using Bluetooth and proximity apps is fundamentally flawed because of its privacy issues of real-time tracking, the security and data breaches which we are already seeing, and being reported, and the reticence for citizens for uptake and download the tracing app. He went on to say the issue at present with other health passports is that not only is the feed of information voluntary, but the technology used, in most cases a QR code or barcode, can't be interacted with outside of the safe distancing zone. 
i.e. 2 metres. Data and sensitive information scanned or secured in either a QR code or barcode can be hacked and it's claimed that the QR code in barcodes are inherently insecure, leaving data and personal details to be compromised. Louis James Davis went on to say both barcodes and QR codes are old second generation technology, recode and replatform represent the next third generation of ultra secure and versatile code technology to military grade encryption with over two quintillion code permutations. VSC Enterprises said they were also in advanced discussions with senior UK government officials, NHS Digital and the Home Office about its cybersecurity technology. On the face of it, this looks like a really interesting product and we wish VST Enterprises well. As always, we should point out that we have no financial connection or other connection with VST Enterprises. We are just bringing the story to you as part of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS. With the lockdown being released gradually here in the UK and across the rest of Europe and indeed the rest of the world, commercial organisations are turning their thoughts to how we get back to business as usual, what needs to be taken into account when we come back to business as usual with regard to GDPR. Well, with many people having been working from home, with the best will in the world, I think it's fair to say that many workers will probably not of 100% stuck to your standard data processes and procedures. And the ICO, for their part, are being quite open on this, and they accept that there will be some lenience required. But you do need to think about how you handle the data now that people are coming back into the office. Still firstly, with those people who you've provided a computer to, they've taken company equipment home and been working on it, what do you need to do with them? Well, really, I guess the main thing is making sure that there is no other software that you wouldn't expect having now been installed onto that equipment. So before you bring it back into the office workplace and start using it on your main systems again, it's probably worth running at least a very good antivirus and malware scan on it just to make sure there's nothing nasty which has got onto that computer whilst it's been in your employee's home. For those who've been using their own equipment, or even those who've been using company equipment when it comes to the data on them, the successful return to business as usual under GDPR will require companies to audit the formal and indeed the informal processes that people have used through the pandemic so that you can be assured you can that the data has been kept secure. This will require some time and some detective work, and it may involve interviewing each member of staff individually. So, you know, you've got to be prepared for this. It's not going to be a five-minute tick-the-box exercise. Don't be a bit more involved than that. But it can be done in a systematic and thorough way. As a first step, before your staff even come back, look at consolidating and reviewing any policy changes to your standard uh, data security policies that have been made by HR, IT or other departments having staff working from home. And make sure that those changes are documented and that you authorise those changes. Now, I appreciate you may be doing that authorization retrospectively, but you should at least be aware of what changes have taken place and be happy as ultimately your data protection officer or data controller that you're happy with those changes that have been made. And then the second step is to engage with the staff and, sur- and survey them to understand in detail exactly what they did when they were working from home. Not only what they did in what work did they do, but how did they do it is the crucial bit. What equipment did they use? How did they keep it secure? How long did they use it for? 
and were there any security issues that they were aware of at the time but they didn't think were serious enough to bother anybody with but you really do need to be aware they happened and you need to document them and ultimately you may wish to need to enter them into your data breach register just so that you've got a record of what has happened. In the majority of cases, of course, there'd be nothing to raise any concern, but using this triage system to triage the issues that do emerge will help address any issues quickly and successfully. And the third step, and this is an absolutely crucial one, is make sure you talk to all your staff about how they've exchanged data with other members of your team. Have they all stuck to using the apps that you provide? Or, and this is going to be very common, I think, have they made use of any Excel spreadsheets to transfer data from their machine to their colleague's machine or vice versa? And how did they transfer that spreadsheet? Was it on the USB key? Did they email it? What did they do with it? Did they secure it in any way? Did they lock it or was it just open? And what was in it? And crucially now, when staff are coming back to work, you need to retrieve all those spreadsheets, be aware of what's in them and quite probably actually destroy them because long term they could present quite a data breach risk. Now, of course, it's also likely that we're going to be entering a new normal where maybe your uh, your factory staff, your operational staff are back at work, but your office staff, your payroll staff, HR, marketing, sales are still all working from home. And so again, now is a good opportunity once staff starts coming back to work. It's a good opportunity to look at how are you transferring that data? How secure is it? Where perhaps during the COVID pandemic, people have been quite relaxed about just using a straightforward connection via the broadband into your system and they've got the data so on. It really is time now to start looking at the introduction of VPNs, of virtual private networks and two-factor authentication so you have a bit more security on that data that's being transferred back and forth between you and your employees. We will return to this in the few, next few episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, but just some thoughts there to get you thinking about what you're going to do as we come out of lockdown and we start getting back to a new normal way of working and how we can make sure that through all of that, we all achieve what should be our main aim for anyone listening to this podcast, which is to keep people's data secure. And now, the rest of this week's news. Stormont's Department of Finance in Northern Ireland is conducting an investigation into a data breach involving the identities of hundreds of historical abuse survivors, the Northern Ireland First Minister has said. The investigation comes after BBC News Northern Ireland revealed a letter had been sent without the names of 250 recipients being anonymised. It was sent on behalf of interim victims advocate Brendan McAllister, who has said he will not resign. Arlene Foster, the First Minister, said the executive deeply regretted what had happened. She went on to say, We are taking it very seriously. We do recognise this is very damaging and the appropriate action needs to be taken. She addressed the issue in the Northern Ireland Assembly after TUV leader Jim Allister tabled an urgent question. He said Mr McAllister's position was now untenable. Some of the individuals named had been part of the historical institutional abuse inquiry and had chosen to remain anonymous. The inquiry had investigated historical allegations of child abuse at 22 residential institutions run by religious, charitable and state organisations across Northern Ireland over a period of some 73 years. The interim advocate has said he takes full responsibility for the error and has referred the matter to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. 
However, the First Minister said she understood investigations by the Information Commissioner's Office could take some time, and so the Department of Finance at Stormont had been tasked with conducting a shorter, fact-finding piece of work. Mrs Foster went on to say, We are taking this very seriously and we want to provide victims and survivors with answers to how it happened. She also faced questions as to when a full-time permanent commissioner for historical institutional abuse victims would be appointed. Mrs Foster told Assembly members that the selection panel had been appointed and the position would be advertised next week. There would be no delay in terms of appointing a new commissioner, she said, adding that she hoped a new commissioner would be in post by August. Mrs Foster said due process needed to be followed and Mr McAllister had already said if he was found to have been involved in any wrongdoing, he would consider his position. She added that she recognised some victims and survivors did not have confidence in Mr McAllister, but others had urged him to stay in the role. If we get any update on this from either the Northern Ireland Executive or from the Information Commissioner's Office, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you may remember that last week we mentioned about a data breach at the European Parliament. And at the time, the EU Parliament refused to confirm or deny whether such a data breach had taken place. Well, this week they've had to confirm that the data breach did indeed take place. And it appears that 1,200 accounts of elected members of the European Parliament alongside 15,000 other accounts of EU affairs professionals professionals had been breached, according to the Parliament's Vice President for IT Policy, Marcel Talaja. The breach was detected through a random scanning of the internet for unprotected data by an Indian cyber security firm, ShadowMap. Marcel Talaja said the large amount of data involved in the breach prompted the Parliament to investigate if any laws had been violated. The founder of the cybersecurity firm which discovered the leaked sensitive data, Yash Kadadia, told Politico the exposed records contain sensitive personal information, passwords, job descriptions and other sensitive information. It's understood that the data also includes information of people with links to various political groups, EU agencies and authorities such as international law enforcement agency Europol, border agencies such as Frontex and the European Data Protection Supervisor, the EDPS. The source of the sensitive data in the EU Parliament breach was a system run under the europarl.eu domain but whose database was not hosted by the institution itself. The system in question was operated by the European People's Party, the EPP, which is the largest political group in the Parliament, headed by Donald Tusk, a name which would be very familiar to people in the UK. It's understood that the faction ran an internet portal that was accessible on the EU Parliament website. The sensitive data had been exposed for a long time, according to the Shadow Map founder, Yastadakia. On detection, the breach was flagged to the Parliament's Computer Emergency Response Team, and access to the sensitive data was restricted shortly after. EPP Group spokesperson Pedro Lopez de Pablo confirmed that sensitive data belonging to thousands of accounts of elected officials was leaked in the incident. He said the leaked data was outdated and belonged to members who subscribed to the old website for the party in 2018. He added that the group had launched a new website in 2019 whose information had not been affected by the reported breach. The leaked data did not pose a threat to the current system because the new website forces its users to reset their password after three months, according to Lopez. Pedro Lopez de Pablo went on to say that they were verifying the emails and would inform the affected people in line with European Union data protection regulations, i.e. in line with GDPR. It's thought that although hackers may not use the login information to access online systems directly, the access of sensitive data of high-profile individuals in the EU Parliament could have massive repercussions. 
The disclosure of information regarding political affiliations could expose the individuals to targeted political messages and physical security threats, while the exposure of personal information exposed them to phishing attacks. Similarly, the exposure of information related to European agencies, such as the European Data Protection Supervisor, Europol and Frontex, could have serious security implications both online and in real life. The access to the sensitive data of over a thousand staff and members of the EU Parliament and agencies by a political faction also raises eyebrows at the EU Parliament's data protection policies. The EU Parliament should ensure that only trustworthy and capable organisations could be affiliated with its information systems. Obviously this is a fast moving story, given that a week ago the EU Parliament wouldn't even confirm that the data breach had taken place, and so doubtless there will be updates to this to come in the following weeks, and whenever we get an update, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Yes, it's true. The excitement's building here in the GDPR Weekly Show studio as we move towards our 100th episode. We always want to say thank you to our listeners and we have some great giveaways lined up for episode 100. So please do make sure that you stay tuned, that you listen to the GPR Weekly Show every week. And especially those episodes from episode 95 to episode 100 when we'll be hinting towards what the giveaways are going to be in our 100th edition of the show. We've had some updates on the EasyJet data breach this week. As you may remember, last week we brought you news about the massive data breach at EasyJet and that the ICO had begun their investigation. The ICO said this week that they were continuing their investigation into the data breach, which they expect to take a while longer yet. But they did say that people have a right to expect that organisations which handle the personal information handle it securely and responsibly. When that doesn't happen, we will investigate and take robust action where necessary. However, it does have to be said that the ICO has also indicated that it's aware of the turmoil that COVID-19 has caused in the travel industry and therefore we don't expect EasyJet to receive a fine of the same magnitude as British Airways. You may remember British Airways was given a penalty of £183 million, although that's still working its way through the legal process. The ICO has indicated that the fine on EasyJet, although the data breaches are similar, is not likely to be of that magnitude, but they've equally given no indication of quite what size they expect the penalty to be. So we need to watch that one going forward over the coming weeks and months. However, EasyJet is already finding itself subject to various legal class actions over the data breach. One law firm, PTMBM, which specialises in group legal action, is suing the airline on behalf of the 9 million customers affected by the incident. The firm has demanded each affected customer is paid approximately $2,400 and has invited all EasyJet customers to join the lawsuit on a no-win-no-fee basis. This is a monumental data breach and terrible failure of responsibility that has a serious implication on EasyJet customers, said Tom Goodhead, managing partner at PGMBM. This is personal information that we trust companies with and customers rightly expect that every effort is made to protect their privacy. Unfortunately, EasyJet has leaked sensitive personal information of 9 million customers from all around the world. 
just remind you the leak was originally taking place in January but was disclosed to the public only last week and included names, email addresses and travel data, departure and arrival dates, reference numbers and booking values and for a small number, approximately 2,200 customers, it also revealed their credit card details. One item which has been cleared up by the ICO this week is that the ICO were notified within the 72 hours required by law of the data breach being discovered by EasyJet. Another legal firm taking action against EasyJet is a legal firm from Belfast called Phoenix Law who say they're acting on behalf of more than 50 customers from Northern Ireland and again they're taking a group action against EasyJet for damages for their customers. Dara Macklin of Phoenix Law said this is probably the largest data breach in the history of this jurisdiction. It's a mammoth data breach and a gross failure of responsibility that has undoubtedly had a serious impact on our clients who've suffered considerable distress as a result. Mr. Mackin insisted EasyJet was under ob- an obligation to ensure all steps were taken to protect and store his clients' personal data. Regrettably, this mass data breach is an unrivaled failure of responsibility, and as such, our clients have now no option but to proceed by way of litigation to recover compensation for the loss and damage they have sustained, he claimed. Our clients have now commenced litigation to ensure that EasyJet are held accountable for their failures and that they are properly compensated for their losses in this instance. The other concern with the data breach at EasyJet, given the volume of customers affected, is that people may try to use information and pretend to be from EasyJet in order to scam people who feel they've been affected by the data breach. And so we would say that if you receive any emails from EasyJet and you have any suspicion about them at all, then please do double check that they are genuine before you provide any information. And EasyJet should not be asking for any real financial information from you in a email so please be doubly careful and if you're not sure don't provide any information we hope next week to have an interview with someone connected with the easyjet data breach and action being taken and we hope to bring that to you in next week's episode of the gpr weekly show if you're a regular listener to the gdpr weekly show you'll remember that last week we mentioned about the group shiny hunters who had gone on something of a data breach spree. Well, one of their targets this week, Minted, a US-based marketplace for independent artists, has confirmed that they have had a data breach after a hacker believed to be from Shiny Hunters sold a database containing 5 million user records on a dark web marketplace. Minted is an online marketplace that allows independent artists to submit their art, which is then voted on by the Minted community. The winning submissions are then sold as art, home decor and stationery to consumers. It is understood that the database obtained from Minted contained 5 million users and mailing address records and was sold for in the region of $2,500. Based on samples of the database that have been seen, the user records include the user's email address and a hashed password. A second database table contains mailing addresses and phone numbers of Minted users. Almost three weeks after the breach took place, Minted has now started to notify users that they have been affected by a data breach after their systems have been hacked. According to Minted's data breach notification, the attackers gained access to Minted's user database on May the 6th, 2020. In their notification, Minted say that the information involved includes customers' names and login credentials to their Minted accounts, consisting of their email address and passwords, the passwords are hashed and sorted and not in plain text, telephone number, billing address, shipping addresses and for fewer than 1% of affected customers' date of birth may also have been impacted, Minted said. It is of course important that the passwords were hashed and sorted, which means they're probably a little use. 
meant it said that they do not believe any credit card information, customer address book information, or photos or personalised information that customers had added to minted designs had been accessed during the breach. Although the passwords were hashed, it's recommended that you change your password on minted if you're a user of the site, and also if you use that same password elsewhere, that you also change it there as well, just to be doubly safe. Although, as I say, because they've been hashed, it's very unlikely that anyone's going to be able to actually decrypt the password. If we get any further update on this from Minted, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Another of Shiny Hunter's targets, the popular math app Mathway, again confirmed this week that it had suffered a data breach, believed to be as a result of action by Shiny Hunter's. The Mathway data has been up for sale on the dark web for the equivalent of $4,000 in Bitcoins or Monero. The data includes user emails and hash passwords. While they've confirmed the data breach, Mathway refused to give any further details at this stage as they said they were still investigating exactly what had happened. They did emphasise that their passwords had been hashed and therefore it was unlikely that anyone who'd taken the data would be able to unencrypt the passwords however they have would of course have gained access to the user email addresses if we receive any further details on this from that way we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the gdpr weekly show if you're a regular listener to the gdpr weekly show you'll know that we have been following a data breach at capital one which occurred quite some time ago now but the ongoing legal action against Capital One by people who are seeking damages continues. And that took a step forward this week when the judge ruled that Capital One must release the forensic report prepared by Mandiant following a data breach which the company is now being pursued after. On Tuesday this week, Judge John Anderson from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia ruled that Capital One is required to provide a copy of the report to attorneys suing the firm on behalf of customers impacted by the data breach. Capital One suffered the data breach originally back in 2018, but didn't disclose it for a year until 2019. It's believed that roughly 100 million U.S. citizens and 6 million Canadian citizens were impacted through the compromise of personally identifiable information gathered by Capital One in relation to their credit card applications. Records from between 2015 and 2019 were accessed, including applicant names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, self-reported incomes, and some fragmented information, including credit scores and transaction data. Paige Thompson, an AWS engineer, has been accused of exploiting a configuration vulnerability to gain access to the data. Following the arrest and search of the suspect's home, Evidence obtained has led US prosecutors to believe over 30 more companies may also have had their data stolen by the same individual. Capital One formed a contract with Mandiant, FireEye's cyber forensic arm, in 2015 to provide security incident support in the event that such services were necessary. The retainer, paid by Capital One, entitled the bank for up to 285 hours of service from Mondiant. Following the data breach, the cyber forensics firm was engaged in services and advice concerning computer security instance response, digital forensics, log and malware analysis and incident remediation. 
As management worked on the incident, class action lawsuits sprung up in their droves on behalf of the millions of customers embroiled in the incident. Over 60 cases were consolidated and attorneys requested access to Mandiant's findings issued on September 4, 2019. Capital One have attempted to argue the work was a result of a business agreement and was protected as a legal document. However, the court did not agree, saying the argument was unpersuasive and that a copy of the report must be provided to those involved in the class action within 11 days. Obviously, this could have quite an impact on the class action, and so if we receive any more news, either from those pursuing the class action or from Capital One, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. Often imitated, but never duplicated. We recently reported that Washington, D.C. has updated its data breach notification law, and now the Vermont state has also amended its data breach notification law, with significant overhauls including the expansion of its definition of personal information and the narrowing of permissible circumstances under which substitute notice may be applied. Bill S.110, amending Vermont's Security Breach Notice Act, was signed into law by Governor Phil Scott and will take effect from July 1st, 2020. In addition, Bill S.110 creates a new duty and prohibition with respect to student privacy directed towards educational technology services. This is similar to a law first enacted in California and later adopted by over 20 states across the US. So the key updates to Vermont's Security Breach Notice Act include expansion of personally identifiable information. Prior to this amendment, the definition of PII, personally identifiable information in Vermont was limited to four basic data elements that when unencrypted a consumer's first name or first initial and last name in combination with social security number, driver license or non-driver identification card number, financial account number or credit or debit card number if circumstances exist in which the number could be used without additional identifying information, access codes or passwords or account passwords, personal identification numbers or other access codes for a financial account. So really quite limited in terms of what was considered to be personally identifiable information. That's now been quite widely enlarged by the new Act in Vermont so that PII within Vermont now includes individual taxpayer identification number, passport number, military identification card number or other identification number that originates from a government identification document that is commonly used to verify identity for commercial transactions, unique biometric data generated from measurements or technical analysis of human body characteristics used by the owner or licensee of the data to identify or authenticate the consumer, such as a fingerprint, retina or iris image or other unique physical representation or digital representation of biometric data, genetic information and health records or records of a wellness program or similar program of health promotion or disease prevention, a healthcare professional's medical diagnosis or treatment to the consumer or health insurance policy number. The amended law also includes notification requirements for breaches of login credentials. The amendment defines login credentials as a consumer's username or email address in combination with a password or an answer to a security question that together permit access to online accounts. If a breach is limited to login credentials and no other personally identifiable information, the data collector is only required to notify the Attorney General or Department of Finance as applicable if the login credentials were acquired directly from the data collector or its agent. On the issue of substitute notices, previously substitute notice was permitted where the cost of direct notice by a writing or telephone would exceed $5,000.
more than 5,000 consumers would be receiving the notice or the data collected does not have sufficient contact information. Under the amended law, substitute notice is only permitted where the lowest cost of providing direct notice via writing, email or telephone would exceed $10,000 or the data collected does not have sufficient contact information. It's no longer permitted to provide substitute notice where a number of consumers exceed a certain threshold. In terms of the student privacy law, the new law also includes the Student Online Personal Information Protection Act, which prohibits an operator from sharing student data and using that data for targeted advertising on students for a non-educational purpose. Under the new law, operator means the operator of an internet website, online service, online application or mobile application used primarily for K-12 purposes and designed and marketed as such. The passage of this law is particularly relevant during the COVID-19 pandemic as student use of education technology services has dramatically increased. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We finished this week with news that Mercedes-Benz, and particularly their parent company, Daimler AG, learned the hard way this week that they should always lock down shared code repositories after a researcher was able to access nearly 9 gigabytes of software development documentation from a misconfigured GitLab repository. The data exposure, which came to light last week, comprised more than 580 repositories in GitLab, the web-based tool for software development collaboration. The data was found by Swiss-based software developer and security researcher Till Kotman. Mr. Kotman discovered Daimler's GitLab pages by using hyper-specific Google searches, sometimes referred to as Google Dorking. He created an account and found that Daimler AG didn't verify that he had the control of an email account within the domain that the company had sanctioned to join the GitLab pages. Thus, he had complete access. Kotman then republished the data via Mega, the online storage platform, and on other outlets. He didn't notify Daimler AG prior to doing this, which is contrary to the grace period most security researchers give companies to rectify a software vulnerability or data leak. The mistake by Daimler was a simple one. It should have made Kotman verify he owned an authorised email address before granting access. This kind of lack of attention to access controls or settings, whether it could be GitLab pages or Elasticsearch clusters or even AWS clusters as we've seen in other data breach cases, has led to big data breaches in the past. Within the repositories there were passwords and API keys which were found by threat intelligence firm under the breach. Kotman says he didn't realise the data also included that type of information. As for why he didn't give Daimler a heads up, Kotman said, I guess this just comes down to my personal beliefs, curiosity and not really caring too much about their corporate interests. I did not intend for there to be credentials and private keys, but apparently didn't check the data thoroughly enough. For automobile manufacturers, which are increasingly wrapping complex services into vehicles for new services delivered via the internet, the danger of sensitive software design and data leaking would, could be devastating. An exploitable software vulnerability in a desktop web browser might end up in a malware infection, but it won't result in an attacker remotely triggering the brakes in someone's car. Luckily, the data from the Daimler AG leak doesn't appear to be useful for any real-world attack. Much of it revolves around source code and development documentation for the onboard logic unit, which Daimler describes as a control unit for its vans. It's designed to be the van's interface to cloud services, delivering live data from the vehicle and connecting with third-party applications. The software appeared to be developed for car sharing. The code and documentation revolved around the use of GPS data, unlocking doors and granting access to a vehicle. It means that the OLU provides a critical role in interfacing to certain physical aspects of the van's operation, but the code appeared to be clearly just in development and not ready for production. 
For their part, Daimler say that the data was neither customer data nor essential development data related to Mercedes-Benz vans. The data was already published as part of Daimler's open source strategy, said their spokesman Thomas C. Rosenthal. Upon learning of the leak, the affected platform was shut down at once, potentially affected credentials were immediately deactivated and respectively deleted, Rosenthal said. We will examine the incident carefully and initiate appropriate measurements. Rosenthal characterised Tottenham's access to the GitLab pages as illicit. Still, it doesn't seem that Daimler AG is interested in going to talk over Topman, and Topman says he received a super chill email from the company on May the 19th, asking him to take the data offline and let him know about its vulnerability reporting policy. At a different point in time, and particularly if the code had been production code, a leak could have been far more damaging. The security ramifications of vulnerabilities in connected cars have been shown to have far-reaching consequences, as was demonstrated with the Jeep Cherokee in 2015. In this case, Damer's problem may have been embarrassing, but it's endurable. But it perhaps has taught them a lesson on ensuring that their data repositories are securely locked down. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.ensurety.co.uk and I look forward to speaking to you again same time, same place, next week. Have a good week everybody and remember to keep your data safe. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.